Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, I'm chatting with Berlin-based author Louisa Weiss about favorite recipes from her book, classic German baking, including Eisenbahnschnitten, Versunker Apfelkuchen, and Kartoffelstrudel. People need to know about strudel. <laughs> it's much simpler than you think, and it's so impressive. Also coming up, we learn a delicious recipe for lemon and shrimp risotto with fresh basil, and Adam Gopnik shares his thoughts on the pleasures and perils of luxury foods. But first, it's my interview with journalist Rowan Jacobson. His latest book, Truffle Hound, is an in-depth look into one of the world's most elusive foods, from dirt-covered fungus to edible luxury. Rowan, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks. Great to be here. So let's ask the obvious question, what is a truffle? 
Uh, a truffle, it's actually, it's, it's like a mushroom, but it's a mushroom that never comes above the surface. Uh, it's the fruiting body of a fungus that lives underground and forms partnerships with trees. And when the fungus wants to reproduce, it makes a truffle, which is a ball of spores and smells that sits underground waiting for an animal to dig it up and eat it and spread the spores through the forest. So why do people go insane about truffles? Uh, you talk about in your book, Truffle Hound, the odor, you know, garlic, cheese, earth, sex, gasoline. Uh, and then you talk about truffles make a sex hormone produced in the saliva of male boars. <laughs> so is there something chemically that's just drives people crazy or is this more myth than uh, science? Yeah, you know, that's the question. It, there's definitely a chemical, uh, you know, sort of hormonal aspect to it where somehow these, uh, these fungi have figured out how to use certain smells to influence animal behavior. Uh, and it, it works really well on animals uh, and seems to work pretty well on us. I mean, it, truffles have a drug-like effect on people and for the very good reason that they're using smells in drug-like ways. So that's, that's the game plan. It, emit these strong, uh, like sex hormones or whatever they are, so animals dig them up and then spread the spores. Right. The, the big challenge for a truffle is you're, you know, three to 12 inches underground you need to get these spores right. spread. How are you going to do it? Um, so the plan that they that the truffles have hit upon is to just smell completely irresistible to animals and to smell so strongly that a passing animal with a really good nose will realize they're there underground and be compelled to dig them up and eat them. I was in northern Italy, Emilia-Romagna, in late September two or three years ago, and there were a lot of white truffles then, I would say they tasted like potatoes. I mean, I mean, they had almost no aroma and flavor, and they shaved them like by the pound. I mean, they were just putting them on every dish. Yeah. So, what's the deal with that? I mean, you go to a restaurant; it's like ninety-five bucks with uh, shaved truffles, and I don't know. Do they have real flavor? A lot of these things. Yeah. Well, you know, as soon as you said I was in Emilia Romagna in September, I was going to say like. Oh, that was a little early. Yes, it um, was. Yes. So they really are like fruits in a lot of ways. Like they have basically seeds or spores inside and they start off underripe and they don't have right. any smell. They don't want to be appealing to mammals yet. And then once the spores mature, then they really crank it on, just like a fruit will suddenly turn red and start to smell good. So that's like one of the many issues in, in the truffle world is that many truffles get dug up and sold before they're ready. Right. So a lot of people get underwhelmed by their truffle experiences. So where do truffles come from? Yeah, every country has its own truffles. The, the classic black winter truffle, the Perigord, is found in France and Spain and Italy. The classic white truffle of Italy is actually found in Italy and throughout Eastern Europe. But the reality is that with black truffles, Spain produces about 70% of the world's supply hmm. on farms. The white truffle, no one's figured out how to farm it. It's just purely wild harvested, which makes it sort of the dynamics of it more interesting. And most of those are coming from central Italy and Eastern Europe now. Is there an opinion about white versus black in terms of flavor, aroma, intensity? There are many opinions, and uh, you know you can pretty much guess. But if someone's French, they're gonna gonna strongly lean toward the the black, and if they're Italian, they're gonna think the white is the only game in town. Um, I think of the white as almost like an intense electric adrenaline rush smell, a lot of gasoline and garlic, um, and a little bit of like you know like locker room. It's um it's kind of like this overwhelming smell that wakes you up. The black winter truffle has a richer, deeper, more chocolatey, cured olive smell, hmm. hazelnut maybe. It's a much warmer, more comforting smell. So it depends like what you want from your evening, you know? <laughs> Gasoline or comfort, I guess there's a difference. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the 
the most fun part of this, the, the truffle hunt. You spent some time doing this. Um, I guess it was sort of like, you know, going to a deer camp, right? Uh, but <laughs> but what is it like? What kind of dogs do they use? How often do you come across a, a truffle? What is it like? I've had mixed experiences with the many truffle hunts that I, I talked to people into taking me on. Sometimes it would be all night long and we would get totally skunked, like zero. And that's pretty depressing to like straggle in in the early morning and be cold and muddy and nothing. Other times it would be just like truffle, truffle, truffle. And it's often a family activity or it's a few guys, like you say, more like deer camp where they're out just checking forests. Each one will have one or two dogs and it's all day hunting and then coming back to, you know, your crash pad and cleaning your truffles and then getting on your cell phone. This is a weird part that I hadn't expected and just emailing your clients who might be dealers across Europe or individuals. So they'll have their truffles sold, but hopefully by the end of that night. Um, and then it's off to, to DHL to ship the truffles the next morning. So when I go to, as I said, a restaurant and, and they have this huge upcharge, you know, would you like truffles on that? And it's like a 50 or $60 upcharge. Um, so what are the economics of this between the person who finds the truffle and then it ends up on your plate at a restaurant? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something I'm hoping is going to change in the truffle world. Like, I'm kind of seeing the first glimmers of maybe a bit of a paradigm shift in truffles because they've always been this super luxurious thing and the dealers kept it luxurious and almost like a diamond, like kind of ritzy. And yeah, those upcharges are just absurd. And the only reason that that's existed is because there's been so many middlemen in the truffle business. But what always struck me is like, here's this thing you can pay $3,000 a pound for, or you can hunt with your dog for free. So I kind of think that Truffles got left out of the whole farm-to-table movement, but now I think they're going to become something where the providence becomes more important and connecting more directly with the uh, the hunters or with the farmers is going to be the way things go, and people are going to cut out those middlemen. And my hope is that once that happens, the price becomes more sane. So philosophically, the white truffle represents something that it's non-replicable, you can't grow it. You can only find so many of them. Uh, it, it just doesn't give in to modern civilization, right? Uh, yeah, I think you you hit it on the head there. It's it refuses to play any of like the <laughs> usual games, and and that elusiveness, like it, it's it's this intense smell that then can di- totally disappear on you. And again, you're off on the hunt trying to find where right. it went. There's something about that dynamic that is just, it go, kind of goes to the core of, of desire and, and, and why eating is such a, um, a, a pleasurable and even intellectually satisfying enterprise. Well, desire is always linked, I think, in the best way to being elusive, right? Exactly. If it's too easy to get, right. you know, how much do you really want it? <laughs> I think that's very true. Uh, Rowan, thank you very much. Uh, The history and the business and the aroma of truffles. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was my interview with journalist Rowan Jacobson. His latest book is Truffle Hound on the trail of the world's most seductive scent with dreamers, schemers, and some extraordinary dogs. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. You know, Chris, I've been thinking about your aversion to the salt and pepper combo, and I sort of know why you're against it, because it's just knee-jerk, and you believe the French always did that? No, it was because black pepper was imported into Europe. It was a huge, very expensive commodity, and so salt and pepper were the two most common, quote-unquote, spices or seasonings available. It's just based upon the commerce, right? That's right. What it, was. it didn't really have to do with flavor. Right. But I have to say, even so, it's been making me rethink black pepper and actually how much I love it and in things that I never realized before. So we go to this wonderful Jewish deli when we travel to my parents' farmhouse, and we always get potato knishes. 
and we got them a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, oh, my God, I finally figured out why I love these knishes so much. It's because of the black pepper in there. So potatoes and black pepper is a match made in heaven. I mean, when you think about it, it's like cacio e pepe, that Italian dish with pasta and black pepper. So black pepper really does have a place. Yes, you're right. It's very good against a bland partner. Yes, all right. But I will say the world of pepper is so much broader. Like Aleppo pepper, that red fruity pepper is now my go-to pepper because it's just so, it has a much more complex flavor than black pepper. But you're right. Ketchup pepe would not be ketchup pepe without No, pepe. and that potato knish, it's all about the black pepper. There you go. Okay, one knish down. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get started. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ashley Roberts from Minnetonka, Minnesota. How can we help you today? I've been trying to successfully make some gluten-free bread in a Dutch oven, and it's just not coming out in the way that I would hope that it would come out. So I was wondering if you guys had any advice or tips or if you know how to bake bread well in an enamel cast iron Dutch oven. I think what's relevant here is not the Dutch oven. You said gluten-free, right? Yes. Okay. Are you following a recipe? Yes, I am. It's an author you trust? No, it's just a random recipe I found. Okay. What kind of flour are you using? All-purpose white flour, mainly rice flour is in it. And are you adding any xanthan gum? Yes, just about a tablespoon of xanthan gum. The gluten is what holds the carbon dioxide in. That's what makes a bread rise. And when you have a flour, a quote-unquote flour that's not really flour, not wheat-based, you don't have that structure that allows it to rise and get that lift, which is why you need the right ratio of flours and xanthan gum. I always reach for King Arthur flour recipes, and also their gluten-free flour is a really a nice mix of flours, plus okay. which they have one that does not have xanthan gum in it, so that you can add just the right amount for whatever you're using the flour for. Okay. Chris, do you have anything to add? A few questions. So this is a gluten-free, all-purpose flour mix you bought in the supermarket? Yes. And the recipe, what kind of bread are we talking about? Kind of like a rustic loaf. It's a dome shape, and then it has one-inch deep slits on the top. So it's a boule. Okay. Did it call for using the Dutch oven, or this was something you thought you'd try? It calls for using the Dutch oven. Well, my experience is making bread especially a rustic loaf, you know, which is supposed to have a lot of chew to it and a crusty top, is Mm -hmm. you've now chosen the hardest thing to do, I think, (laughs) in all of baking. So I would start with, as Sarah said, go find someone who has published a book and can do gluten-free and follow that recipe because when you get to this kind of bread, the structure of that flour, you know, brown rice flour, white rice flour, xanthan gum, psyllium husk, potato starch, other things, it makes a huge difference. We found we couldn't use one gluten-free flour recipe for everything. Each type of baked good required its own formula. Go to Serious Eats. They're great. They'll probably tell you to make your own flour mix specifically for this bread. The short answer is the mix you bought needs to be customized for this recipe, so you need to make your own mix is my guess. But good for you. If you succeed in doing a good rustic loaf that's gluten-free, they're going to make a statue to you, but go to Series Seeds because I think they would be very helpful. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Good luck. Thank you uh, so much. Good for you. You are intrepid. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a kitchen mystery, please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 426-9843, or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Carrie from Santa Monica. Hi, Carrie. How can we help you? Well, I am looking for a cooking technique for a crispy quail with Thai dipping sauce. 
Ooh. I've been thinking about it for a while, and I have the marinade figured out and the sauce and a couple of options for cooking, but I thought you all might have some good tips for me. So the, I'll tell you a couple that I had thought of and what I've tried. Okay. I thought I could do it like a classic fried chicken with a heavy flour batter, and that seems too thick for a tiny quail. Mm-hmm. I thought about doing them naked like a buffalo wing or using just a light dredge and cornstarch and frying it that way. And that's the one that I've tried. And it was good, but it wasn't as crispy as what I was looking for. How about more like a tempura batter, which is much lighter? A wetter batter then? Yes. You know, you can use seltzer and some cornstarch, some flour. Actually, I'll tell you my favorite all-purpose batter that you can really have thin is a beer batter. where the flour part of it is like three-quarters of a cup flour to one-quarter of a cup cornstarch to a teaspoon or half a teaspoon of baking powder. Oh, soda, excuse me, because we got the beer, which got acid in it. And you whisk that all up, add a cup of beer or even a little more if you want a little lighter. Take about a quarter cup of that out, add the beer to the remaining part, dust the quail with the bit you took out with a little bit of the flour, shake it off, dip it in the batter, Mm -hmm. and then um, fry it. And it it just comes out really crispy. I haven't done it with quail. i got to be honest. (laughs) It sounds great. Anyway, Chris, what do you want to say? We have an unusual recipe for Thai-style fried chicken, which it's kind of weird. You have water, a little water, egg white, some spices, which you toast in a skillet, mix that up, put the chicken in or the quail let it sit for an hour in the fridge in a bowl, and then you fry it with a coating of cornstarch. Mm-hmm. And you don't use baking powder or anything. You rinse off the marinade and then put the cornstarch mm-hmm. on it. But the cornstarch gives you a very thin, crispy coating. So you get the spices, which I think would be great with quail, right? Coriander, right. cumin, pepper, usually white pepper they use, egg white water, and then just cornstarch, a couple cups of cornstarch, just the dredge, and then fry I remember that recipe. It's pretty good. It sounds great. It sounds a lot like the marinade that I used. It had cilantro, garlic, brown sugar, coriander, fish sauce, salt, and pepper. So this right one up had the fish same sauce alley. Too. Yeah, it's very similar. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ours didn't have sugar, I don't think. But yeah, that's definitely worth trying. Well, these sound like two great alternatives. Thanks for calling. Carrie, thank you. Thanks. Take care. Yeah, Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we chat with Louisa Weiss about classic German baking. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, Pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, 
That is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Louisa Weiss, home cook and author of Classic German Baking. Louisa, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. So you started in Berlin, uh, West Berlin, in the 70s. Uh, you moved away. Uh, you came back. What did you find when you came back? Was it very different? Yes. Yes and no. I moved back to the neighborhood that I'd grown up in as a child. And my mother lives here and has lived here the whole time. So I'd seen it over the years periodically so in some ways, Berlin felt very familiar, but of course, an enormous amount changed. And um, yeah, it's changing all the time. It's different now than it was 10 years ago. So classic German baking, let, let's talk about this. I, I spent some time in Austria because my wife's mother was born there. And many of the things you talk about in your book ring a bell. So is this baking of Germany? Is it similar to Austria? Is it similar to Eastern Europe? Or is it really specifically Germany? Well, Central European baking is definitely all of a, of a tradition. That's why things that we see in, for example, sweet baking in Poland is quite similar to a lot of the sweet baking in Germany. Germany, I think, does have you know many of its own baking traditions that go back for almost a thousand years. But yeah, I would say in general, Central European baking is a thing that is recognizable. You have to love the German language sometimes because it just makes you smile. Mm -hmm. Like sunken apple cake, versunkener, mm -hmm. apfelkuchen. You just go like, it just sounds great. And, and, and a lot of the things in the book it was so interesting. You have obviously some more complex recipes, but, you know, basically a one layer cake, whether it's plums or apples or something, they're actually sound like they're pretty easy to throw together, right? Yes, absolutely. So what what is the typical batter for that? How does it work? Well... You have to imagine German sweet baking divided into the batter cakes and the yeasted cakes. Mm -hmm. And batter cakes, especially the really simple ones, they're just, you know, a batter with eggs, butter, sometimes some milk, flour, sugar, lemon peel. Lemon peel is, a, is an all-star. And then there's yeasted cakes, which are also pretty simple with the addition of yeast and a slightly different ratio of flour to eggs and butter and milk. And people are really... Uh, evangelical about which cake base they prefer. 
everybody has an opinion. So some people will say, oh, I love plum cake, but only if you make it with a yeasted crust. If it's with a batter crust, I won't. It's not my thing. Or the other way around, like with with um, poppy seeds, people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I love poppy seed cake, but only with a batter base and not with a yeasted base. So the, <laughs> this is what people all across Germany are sitting at and discussing with their coffee in the afternoon. Is there, Yes. They're they fighting all, about batter versus yeast. Yes, yes, they all have an opinion. They all have <laughs> family recipes and or a favorite bakery that makes it the way they like. Yeah. Cake is a very, very big part of culture here. Um, so explain to me the sunken concept, like the Kirschkuchen. What, what does sunken mean? It means that the fruit sort of makes it look, the top looks sunken? Is that it or what? Yes. Well, the fruit, actually, you make the batter, put it in the cake pan, and then you sort of drop the the fruit on top. And the fruit during the baking process sinks into the batter, creating these little, these little divots all over the top of the cake. And then when you cut a piece, when it's cooled, you've got a slice of cake with fruit sort of suspended in it. Um, it's very rustic. It's not going to win any beauty awards, but it makes for a really nice eating experience. <laughs> uh, one of the photos that I just went crazy, the almond cream jam bars, the Eisenbahn oh, yeah. that just like, okay, that hit all the, all the things I'm so I love. I'm so glad that that spoke to you because that is one of the greatest recipes in the book, in my opinion, and it doesn't get made often. I think people are intimidated by it. I'm not sure. So just describe what it's like and what it's like to eat. It's a shortbread base topped with jam. You can use either red currant or apricot. In fact, I call for both so that you can have a little variation. And then you make a frangipan, which is you mix almond paste with eggs and sugar. And you pipe this mixture on the edges of Mm. the shortbread base that have been filled with jam. So you're creating sort of like a train track. And then you bake them and cut them into little rectangles. And with each bite, you get crumbly base, chewy, sweet, sour jam, and then this creamy, chewy almond mm. paste topping. It's, they're really special. And they keep really well. They're one of those amazing things that you can make and keep for a while. Well, you could make some for me inside them. I mean, they, they'll last about 24 hours in this household. Um, this is really interesting, the black and white cookie, the Americana. You said it's not named... American, uh, it has a totally different derivation than what I thought. So, so what is that? Right. So, I mean, this is a apocryphal. We, we're not a hundred percent sure, but the black and white cookie. I always associated it with New York, and I always saw them here in bakeries. And it was one of those things I always wondered about. Why did this cookie make it over to Germany? Until I realized it was actually the other way around. And the traditional black and white cookies were leavened with baker's ammonia. And so the theory is that they were called ammoniacana, German for ammonia is mm. ammoniac, and that that over time turned into americana. Mm. And we tested the recipe with baking soda, with baking powder, and with baker's ammonia, and it really, really, truly made a difference. The baker's ammonia make them incredibly special. The texture is just really unique and wonderful. Um, okay, so let, let's have a discussion uh, about soccer tort. I've been to hotel soccer years ago, had it a couple of times. You know, it was okay. It seemed a little stale at the one time I went. The other time was a little fresher. But I was not, you know, it was not, wow, this is amazing. You say, however, that if you make one at home, it is revelatory. Uh, so do you want to, like, give me a commercial for soccer tour? Explain what it is, first of all, and how it's made. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you asked about this because I could wax on about this forever. Mm. Um, I had the exact same experience as you. Every time I had a piece of Zaha Torta, it didn't matter where, I was like, what is the deal? This is just right. kind of a dusty, not right. particularly chocolatey cake. It's not very good. It, it's often stale or it tastes like it's been in the yeah. fridge for a while. My husband and I even went to Vienna when I was working on the book to sort of do some, you know, <laughs> on a business trip to, to taste things. And um, we didn't go to Hotel Zaha, but we tried a bunch of different cakes in, in various places. And I remained underwhelmed. And then I, I couldn't let go, though. Um, and at home, I ended up testing a bunch of different Zaha Torten. And I stumbled upon this one. And I've, it is truly revelatory. 
So a zahatorte is a very light chocolate cake that has a thin topping, sort of an enrobing of apricot jam. And then on top of that, a very thin chocolate glaze that has to be cooked. But when you pour it on top of the cake, it dries to this glossy mirror-like finish. And the recipe that ended up making it into the book is spectacular. It's light and yet chocolatey and it's moist, but airy. And it's, it's just incredible. I'm going to have to change my whole my Yeah, whole try tune. it, try it. Um, strudel, <laughs> could you explain, I mean, just define what it is. Everyone thinks of Apfelstrudel probably, but I think you use it in a more, in a broader sense. So what defines a strudel? So a strudel is a pastry made with this incredibly thin dough, so thin that you can read a newspaper through it, as they say, and you fill, you can fill it with anything. You can fill it with uh, apples. You can fill it with plums. You can fill it with savory things like sautéed cabbage and bacon or mashed potatoes, which is excellent. Um, that's the kartoffel strudel? That's kartoffel strudel. It's my husband's favorite. And the understanding is that strudel dough actually came from the Ottoman Empire. I was just going to say, it's, it's, yeah, right. it sounds like the phyllo, yeah. Exactly. And if you go on YouTube, <laughs> you can see um, Turkish bakers yep. rolling out yufka or phyllo dough and Austrian bakers rolling out strudel dough. And then you see the connection immediately and it makes perfect sense. I've watched that video. It's just unbelievable. I mean, huge yes. sheets. Yeah. They, they were less than paper thin. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. And I was sort of worried that I wouldn't be able to crack the strudel code for the home cook. But what I discovered was actually that it's a much, much easier thing than anybody would believe. The dough itself is incredibly simple to make. It's, wait, 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 wait. You're, we got to make this from scratch? Yes, yes, you have to. Oh, and it's so tough. much fun. It's so much fun. It's such a great project. Well, okay, now I'm interested. So how do you make your strudel dough by scratch? So strudel dough is just a very small amount of flour, sunflower oil, a pinch of salt, and water. And the important thing is kneading it. You knead it for a very long time, about 10 minutes. And then it's a very small ball that emerges. It's about the size of the palm of your hand. Hmm. And then this dough is incredibly forgiving and you you roll it out as as much as you can and then you start to tug it out you sort of put your hands underneath it and using the backs of your hands and your knuckles you very calmly and slowly stretch the dough further and further and further so once you've pulled it out to this incredible gossamer thinness you can actually just leave it there fill it with whatever filling you're using and then roll it in on itself. And then the the final trick to getting a really delicious strudel is basting it with melted butter throughout right. the baking process. And the basting of the butter combined with this gossamer thin dough creates flake. It's 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 so much fun. It's the best science experiment. The first time you did this, did it work? Uh, yes, pretty much. That's yeah. why you wrote the baking book. Yes, because I thought, wait a minute, people need to know about strudel. <laughs> it's much simpler than you think, and it's so impressive. It's just such an incredible accomplishment. Um, gingerbread. You have Lebkuchen, old-fashioned German gingerbread. Is that totally different than what we think of gingerbread over here? It's not totally different. I would say it's a cousin of fourth degree or something like that. Um <laughs> German Lebkuchen is one of the oldest cookies in the world. I think they have found Lebkuchen in, you know, cooking sites that are like a thousand years old. So it's been around for a very, very long time. There are as many gingerbread varieties as there are breads in Germany, it feels like. Um, every region has their own version. And uh, as a result, in my Christmas chapter, there are lots of different kinds of Lebkuchen. The most famous ones, I would argue, are actually Elisenlebkuchen, which are these round, almost cakey looking cookies that are very rich. They're made with an enormous amount of chopped nuts and marzipan. But there are also lots of other different kinds of Lebkuchen. For example, the old-fashioned gingerbread, which is a pretty lean 
dough that's made with flour and a lot of honey, lots of spices and eggs, and leavened with potash. And it ripens, the dough ripens for two months before baking. Mm. Um, And because of the potash has this incredible crumb Mm. and an incredibly complex, incredibly delicious flavor. So what surprised you in doing the research for this book and doing the, the recipe development? Well, I grew up in this expat bubble, really, here in Berlin. My mother's Italian, my father is American, and the the people that I grew up with were all sort of German-American or a jumble of various cultures. And um, I learned a lot of German baking, actually, from a very dear friend of mine who is American, um, but has lived here since the 50s. And so much of what I understood of baking, I always thought it was my friend's influence and sort of her way. She's a very warm and loving person and she would always bake for other people and she expressed her love through baking. And I kind of always thought that was just Joni. But when I researched the book, I realized that actually she had learned all of that when she came here and when she started to bake German things. Um, Germans really use baking as an expression of of love and affection when a baby's born. Uh, it has been a tradition for hundreds of years to bring a braided, yeasted loaf to the to the baby's christening um, or to the new mother. And the same when someone dies. Um, there's this incredible tradition of sweet baking being a part of the celebrations and also the elevation of everyday life that... I'd always suspected it, but I'd never had it really confirmed in that way. And that's the thing that I think stuck with me the most about what I learned during the writing of the book. Louisa, thank you so much. Um, I love the book. I have so many things I need to make. Oh, thank uh, start, you. Starting with that soccer torte because I, I need to have a new experience with a yes. dessert. Yeah. Oh, I, I hope you love it. Louisa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Louisa Weiss, author of Classic German Baking. You know, German baking is a pretty good way to get familiar with the language itself. The Blitz and Blitzkuchen means lightning. The Schnitten and Eisenbahnschnitten means cut. And the Versunker and Versunker Afrikuchen means sunken. So, after a while, you really start to think you're getting the hang of it until you stumble across a word like squirrel's tail, which is Eichhorschen Schwanz. So how Wagner ever transferred German into opera is, well, beyond me. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, lemon and shrimp risotto with fresh basil. J.M., how are you? I am great. Amalfi, you think of Amalfi, you think about many things, but lemons is one of the things you think about. (laughs) You have spoken to cooks in Amalfi who use lemons for many, many things. And this week we're talking about a risotto dish that uses lemon. Yeah, you know, the thing that really impressed me with the cooks in Amalfi were that lemons aren't just like used in everything, but that every part of the lemon is used. You know, obviously the zest and obviously the juice, but even the leaves, like the older leaves, they use to smolder and smoke cheese. Hmm. And the really young leaves, they batter and fry them in olive oil. And so like nothing goes to waste. And this dish in particular, I was like kind of just fascinated with because they use lemon at so many levels of flavor in the single dish. So, you know, we, it's just a lemon and shrimp risotto, you know, it doesn't sound like anything special. But they start out by infusing the broth that they use to cook the rice with lemon zest. So right there, you've got a big punch of lemony flavor that's going right directly into the heart of the rice. Then as the risotto cooks, they stir in more grated zest directly into the risotto. Then they finish the dish with lemon juice for like a big, bright, acidic pop of flavor at the end. So you're getting like these three layers of flavor that really enrich this dish. They also use a couple other things to 
quote-unquote enrich the dish in egg yolk and cream. Is that typical for risotto or is that just their approach? It's typical for the risotto of this region, but it's not typical to like a typical Milanese risotto because, you know, we think of Parmesan cheese as being kind of the gooey, rich part of that dish. But actually, there's no cheese at all used in this one. As you say, they use heavy cream and an egg yolk that they whisk into the finished risotto right at the very end, and it gives it this kind of creamy unctuousness that is really wonderful. Now, there are two ways of making it. You can make it with or without shrimp. And we opted to do it with the shrimp because in addition to infusing the broth with lemon zest, we can also infuse it with the shrimp shells for even another layer of flavor. And so the result is a really complex dish for not a whole lot of ingredients. And a little basil at the end. Yeah, a little basil to brighten things up. Works on almost everything. Jam, thank you. This is a risotto from Amalfi with lemon and shrimp finished with basil, full of flavor. Thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for lemon and shrimp risotto with fresh basil at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik wonders if luxury food should still have a place at our table. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is uh, Craig Bristero from uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. How can we help you? Well, uh, you know, my aunt runs our family bakery, and uh, she had someone come in the other day and said they used yeast to raise their cookie dough instead of baking powder or baking soda. She'd never heard of that, so 
being a chef, she turned to me and said if I'd ever heard of that, and I hadn't. So I figured I'd call you guys up and see if you've ever heard of it and if you tried it and if there's a benefit to it. What kind of cookie was it? Pond de Pueblo. It's like a shortbread. It's a good question because usually, obviously, it's baking powder, baking soda, depending on the uh, acidity of the dough. Yeah. You know, I've never made cookies with yeast. You could certainly use yeast, but it actually mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever because you're not dealing with yeah. shortbread. Shortbread is not a gluten-heavy dough. It's not elastic. You're not getting a lot of rise right. out of it because the yeast only works well with a very elastic developed gluten. So now I think about it, I have no idea why anybody would use yeast for a shortbread cookie. Would it maybe work in something else like a chocolate chip cookie? I mean, to me, it doesn't make any sense at all personally, but that's why I'm calling you guys. It makes no sense to me unless somebody one day was out of baking powder and they only had yeast. This is how these things happen, and they just made it with yeast, and then everyone else made it with it. There's zero reason for rice. Right. Unless there was some weird cold fermentation for two days in the refrigerator, and they developed flavor as a result. But I doubt that. I mean, the recipe, I'm sure, is not sitting in the fridge for three days. So um, you stumped me. I have no idea why you use yeast for a cookie dough. Sarah? Yeah, no, I agree with both of you. I can understand if you wanted more rise and a fluffier texture, right? Yep. That I get, but these are more dense cookies, right? Have you tasted her cookies? I haven't. I just heard from my aunt, and I was like, yeah, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. We should say, though, in passing, that, I mean, there are recipes for cookies with yeast, right? Yeah, there are. This is not the only one. There are. Like spritz cookies and things. Yeah. Well, I would just... Confirm if it was a long, slow rise, maybe there's some value in the flavor, or if you wanted the fluffier texture, but it otherwise, I'm sense. stumped. Yeah, yeah, we all agree. So, yeah, anyway, that was a fascinating question. Thanks, yeah. thanks, Greg. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been an honor talking to you both. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Yes, bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a culinary question, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855 426 9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Mallory from Red Oak, Texas. How are you? I'm doing good. I was actually calling to follow up with you guys on the old-fashioned. Ah, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember, yes. I spent four hours telling you how to make an (laughs) old-fashioned. Because Chris really doesn't care about them at all. So did you make it? Yes, we made quite a few of them. And they're so good. They're fantastic. And now we cannot make them without mixing the rye and bourbon. I mean, that was just a game changer for one. Isn't it? That adds, well, you tell me. I mean, why did you like the mix? The rye added a spiciness to it that sometimes the bourbon kind of lacks. When you use the rye and bourbon, you're like, wow, okay, I've, yeah. I've not had an old-fashioned like this before. And I think you're right. It balances. Because an old-fashioned has a little bit of sweetness to it yeah. with sugar syrup or something. And so you need the rye to stand up to it. Let's talk about brands. What's your favorite brand of bourbon and rye? Previously, we were Bullet fans. And we tried the High West, and now we're officially High West fans. And what about bourbon? Buffalo Trace has always been a favorite. And so when you mentioned Buffalo Trace, we're like, oh, perfect. We already have it. Let's go through the recipe for listeners. So it's half bourbon, half rye, a shot of Angostura, a shot of maybe something else like an orange bitters, a little bit of sweetener or raw sugar cube. We did use the sugar cube. Mm -hmm. And when we muddled it, I don't know if we're not muddling it enough, but we still have like quite a bit of sugar left at the bottom when we go to pour the drink into the glass. If you have a Boston shaker, you know, the two-part metal shaker, mm-hmm. I put the cube in the smaller half, it doesn't matter really, with the bourbon and rye, with the bitters and a splash of water because you need a little bit of water to really dissolve the sugar. And I muddle yeah. it in that and then I put the two halves together and shake it maybe 15 or 20 times. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so thank you so much. Glad you liked it. I really am. That's great. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Thanks, Mallory. Yeah, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey, Chris, you know, I just thought about it. Do you have any idea how the old-fashioned got its name? 
Yeah, I did research it. It was because it was the original cocktail. What? That's why it's called the old fashioned. It was spirits, some sweetener, sugar syrup, and bitters, and maybe a little bit of water. And that was the original drink. Now, they did it with lots of different alcohols. So it wasn't just a bourbon cocktail, but it was the original drink. When you say the original, what year are we talking about, roughly? I think we're talking about late 1800s. Certainly by the 1920s, the the cocktail business was was booming. Booming, yeah. But I think we're talking late 1800s, where it was sort of the original, you know, spirits, sugar, bitters mixture. And eventually, I think around the 1940s or 50s, it sort of became a bourbon cocktail. Huh. Uh, Do you have any idea who invented or, you know, made the very first one and called it an no, old fashioned? No, it, it was showing up in books or in newspapers as the old fashioned, but nobody agrees about the first time because huh. it, it was showing up in a lot of different places yeah. about the same time. But I think it's the best. It, it's the perfect mixture as you can tell. Clearly, really. Of, How do you really feel? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes the first thing is the best thing, right? So yep. That's yep, the old thing. There fashion. you go. This is Mill Street Radio. Next up, it's regular contributor, Adam Gopnik. Adam, how you doing? I am well, Chris. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, what's been on your mind recently? Chris, I don't know if your experience tracks mine, but I was thinking a lot lately about how when I was coming of age as an eater back in the 1960s and early 70s, it was still possible to eat, or let's say at least to taste, the most luxurious of foods with something like reasonable frequency. Not regularly or steadily, but sporadically and without feelings of enormous guilt or unreal expense. In the 1970s, when my dad first developed a taste for wine, Grand Cru wines were available. In Canada, sturgeon caviar was also something that was available. In the 1980s, I actually went with my wife to a wine dinner in Washington, D.C., where they served nothing but DRC wines, you know, the Domaine de Romani-Conti. Latoche and... Uh, the most expensive wines. The yeah. most expensive wines. Now, it was a big deal, right? But it wasn't a ruinous or crazy big deal. Our host was a famous wine connoisseur of the time who worked during the day as a neurosurgeon. Every night, he tasted great wines, and the next day, he operated on people's brains. This, by the way, seemed like such a crazy combination of expertise. <laughs> I was going to say. But my point... Chris, is that he was a neurosurgeon. Now, I'm sure neurosurgeons make a nice living, but he was not a rajah or a sheik or the head of a hedge fund. Um, I don't mean to over-democratize those pleasures, and I don't mean to pretend that they were widely available in any sense. But not long ago, my friend Peter Hoffman, a wonderful chef and writer, pointed out to me that a double bottle of DRC had just auctioned off for $50,000. Fifty thousand dollars, right? So we're talking now not about luxuries; we're talking about unobtainable pleasures completely. Uh, and Peter and I were talking about this and about how many of those things, which were once attainable if infrequent luxuries, had now become the exclusive property of the one percent. And we asked ourselves: Was there anything left in that world of luxuries that we had been imprinted on as kids that was still around? And we realized that we could get a half bottle of Chateau Yquem, the greatest of all sweet wines, for a price that you couldn't exactly call reasonable, but that certainly wasn't outside the realm of decency. So we bought a half bottle and decided to make a dinner that would be dedicated to the one last luxury. Hmm. And I made duck breast with pears, and I made an apricot souffle. But can I tell you the truth? About that evening. Are we headed to the dark side now? We are headed to the dark side. <laughs> I you knew tell. there would be a I new dark it. side. Yeah. It was in weird way unsatisfying because it seems to me that when you're enjoying something, part of the enjoyment is your knowledge that it's one in a sequence of things. We want luxury to be sort of like a birthday, not a rare visitation like a comet. So, so let me ask a question then. So what do you think of young love? Something dimly remembered from your past (laughs) that was very sweet but fleeting. Is that a different thing? I think (laughs) it's different in the sense that it's renewable. When I see my kids with their partners, I recognize that they are experiencing exactly the same young love that I did. Good point. But when I taste a bottle of a largely unobtainable wine now, I can't think, oh, this is a pleasure that I'll pass on. 
But here's what we can do, despite that, it seems to me, and that is to redefine our smaller special occasions as though they were the grander luxuries. Mm. I mean things that we still take somewhat for granted, but that we ought to treat as though they would someday soon become unobtainable luxuries. Smoked salmon, for instance, right? Lox. It's easy to imagine a world in which smoked salmon would be as rare and special as caviar, and we would relish it in the same way. So let's relish it now. Raw oysters. Is there anything in the world that you would travel farther to taste if they were completely unavailable than a plate of great raw oysters? Or even the occasional bottle of champagne. If we redefine luxury as, as that which we can have sometimes and frequently enjoy, we'll be able to remake our universe in a more meaningful way. So luxury and abundance are connected. Yes, I think so. Luxury and abundance are connected. The things that we really take pleasure in, the luxurious pleasures that we can genuinely relate to and not just treat as a bizarre trip to a rich man's house, those things have to be at least abundant enough to be available. And when a pleasure ceases to be available, even if it's at the extreme edge of availability, then it's no longer a pleasure. Then it's simply an oddity and an extravagance. Adam, thank you very much. Abundance and pleasure are going hand in hand. Thank you. Pleasure, Chris. And a luxury. (laughs) That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, and order our latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>